We are in chapter 9 of Revelation. Last bit of chapter 9, around verse 12. Now, we're skipping around at this point in Revelation to try to pick up the various judgments. And then during this class, we'll finish the, the judgments, what we're going to look at right now, and begin the story part, the very last part of Revelation, the story. So the first woe is past, okay? The first woe was the fifth trumpet judgment. We've had seven seals and five trumpets so far. Two woes are still coming after these things. If you remember, the first woe was pretty awful. It's no wonder they're called the woe judgments. The first one was the locusts with the stings that could torture men for five months. But the uh, believers were spared, specifically spared from that judgment. And I forgot to mention to you, I I realized when I was listening to the um, posting from last week, I forgot to point out one of the previous judgments, in fact, I think it was the mm, third or fourth uh, horse rider, the seal. This is where uh, death and Hades come. Death comes and Hades is closely following. It's the fourth horse, I believe. And I wanted to point out to you that that, it is entirely possible that that judgment as well is specifically directed at unbelievers and not believers. That some of the judgments are kind of geographic and therefore will affect everybody, believer or unbeliever. But that particular judgment, one of the reasons I I think believers may be supernaturally protected is because... The, of the mention of Hades. It, death is coming with Hades right after him, and the believers aren't going to Hades. So that was, you know, some food for thought. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, that, that altar is kind of interesting also. The, in the tabernacle design and the temple design that God gave to Moses... There was more than one altar. I don't know if you know that, but there's more than one altar. And there, in fact, there were two altars that had horns on them that were part of the altar. But only one of those altars was to be covered in gold. The other was to be covered in brass or bronze. So we know that this golden altar with horns is most likely the heavenly equivalent of the one that was on earth that was called the altar of incense. And we know from our, already from our studies that the incense in heaven is the prayers of the saints, right? And look at in the tabernacle where the altar was placed. That altar of incense was to be placed just outside the veil to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And it was to be positioned so that it was directly in front of the mercy seat, which, as we studied before, is the earthly equivalent of the throne of God. Here in heaven, we see exactly the same thing. We have a golden altar, presumably altar of incense, that is sitting directly in front of the throne of God, the mercy seat. The only difference, what's the difference? There's no veil. There's no veil. And for Christians, there is no veil even here on earth because that veil was split top to bottom when Christ was crucified. Christ removed the veil between us 
and God. And that's what this altar symbolizes. Yes, ma'am. May I make a comment or ask? Please do. Every time I've heard that talk, it was always told to keep in mind that the veil between me, we couldn't go through, uh, was not really a thin piece of material. It was really thick woven. Right. You couldn't see. Yeah. Yeah. Width yeah. of a man's hand. The veil was the width of it. Yeah, it was a thickness of a man's hand. It was Nobody very. It was woven material. Yeah. Nobody could. Nobody could just rip it. It wasn't flimsy. Yeah. Um. Let's see. And so he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So could the voice be the voice of Christ? Mm-hmm. Could have been. Doesn't say. Anyway, verse fourteen. The voice said. To the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Think of it a minute. Those angels, those four angels are currently bound at the river Euphrates. Doesn't that give you pause that there are four angels holding back 200 million, as we will see, supernatural beings who are going to be released to kill a third of mankind at the exact moment that God has ordained? And this is how I saw in the vision the horses that these army sat on and those who sat on them the riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues by the fire the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So they kill with the fire and brimstone and smoke that come out of their mouths, but they can harm you as well with their tails like serpents. Now this is no no kind of horse I ever saw. Obviously these are supernatural beings of some sort, and they sound utterly terrifying. Brimstone is associated historically with sulfur, which is found in large quantities around the Dead Sea, which was where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So I think that's kind of how we get that connection, is is sulfur, is brimstone is probably sulfur, but nobody knows really for sure what brimstone is, but that's what it's always been associated with. Once again, we don't know if the plagues are localized or widespread, if it's a third of mankind in a particular slice of the earth or if it's all over the earth. They sound pretty mobile, so it seems to me likely that this is a third of mankind across all of the earth. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. This gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. 
here we are more than halfway into all of the judgments and still God is giving men the opportunity to repent it's pretty awful and it's pretty terrible but there's still a chance even at this point to repent that's the heart of God the seventh trumpet is the third and the last woe it's in Revelation 10 verse 1 I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire and he had in his hand a little book a scroll which was open he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he had cried out the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices when the seven peals of thunder had spoken I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them well right off the bat I want to tell you it's amazing how many commentators try to guess what those seven peals of thunder said <laughs> well, it's obviously better that we not know right now so we're not going to speculate in this class about what those seven peals of thunder said I'm sure we will find out at some point what I do want you to notice is that the little scroll is already open and also that that angel has one foot in the sea and one foot on the land now I heard one teacher say not long ago um, on a, in a radio address about this passage that that was the stance that Roman conquerors took when they conquered an area to, to demonstrate their ownership so this is this is clearly God taking ownership and that does not surprise us because we are to the seventh trumpet remember the seventh seal was kind of an it is finished kind of seal remember so the seventh trumpet is kind of an it, it is finished trumpet it's, it's like they all work together and they end up at the same point saying ownership has transferred the world belongs to Christ let's look at verse 5 then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heaven and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it and here's what he proclaimed there will be delay no longer but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound his trumpet then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets so we know when that seventh trumpet sounds it marks the end and just like the seventh seal had the seventh, seven trumpets kind of inside of it the seventh trumpet has seven more judgments inside of it and those seven judgments are plagues they're called plagues they're also called bowls they're also called bowls of wrath throughout Revelation so you can use the terms interchangeably they're sometimes called the bowl judgments they are so severe that it is obvious they have to happen in a very short time or everybody would be dead I mean we're talking in a matter of day hour kind of time it, it's it's not 
over a, over a week or two. It's very quickly that these, these last judgments have to happen. Therefore, we're going to wait and plug them in where they belong chronologically, which is at the very end. We're not going to read those today. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, this is John, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now to understand the significance of eating the little scroll, all we have to do is turn to Old Testament scripture. There's a couple of very informative passages. One is in Ezekiel. It's in your scripture references. Ezekiel 2 verse 8. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. That's the you know, house of Judah that Ezekiel was sent to. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Remember the words. What were the words that were on it? They were words of lamentation, mourning and woe. Remember? So the spirit lifted me up and took me away. This is Ezekiel 3.14. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. So he ate this scroll that was full of lamentations and bitterness and woe. It tasted sweet. But once it was inside of him, he was filled with rage. Now look at Jeremiah. Same thing happened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15 verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy, the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. For you filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? So a completely parallel passage with another prophet. So now here we have three prophets where we can see that the, the sweetness, like honey, is the, is the receiving of the word of the Lord. It's the essence of the word itself. The message, however, has a physical reaction on the prophet. Makes it, it makes him sick to his stomach because he sees and understands and is literally filled with the anger of the Lord. Now we're going to skip forward to where the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. 
Now, when you're reading through Revelation, there's a little interlude in there. Don't worry, we're going to back up. We're going to get it in, in, a, in, a, in another lesson when, it, when we get to it chronologically. But right now, we're just following the themes of the trumpets. So the seventh trumpet is kind of told about in two, two places. There's this introduction to the seventh trumpet that says, when the seventh trumpet sounds, everything's finished. And then there's a description of the seventh trumpet. And the description is in Revelation 11, verse 14. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. You can hardly read that verse without thinking of Handel's Messiah, can you? Just Handel really captured it. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth and the temple of God, which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Obviously, and it is finished trumpet, right? Just like that seventh seal was an it is finished seal. Look back at Revelation chapter eight. I have to flip back to it. Um, verse 5. This is the opening of the seventh seal. Look what happened at the end when the seventh seal was opened. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. That's just exactly what we just read here on the seventh trumpet. This is, we're talking about the same event here. Okay, in my opinion, my humble opinion, we're talking about the same event. I don't think God does this three times. I think he does it once. Okay, so I think the seven seals gave us an overview and an end. The seven trumpets give us more specifics about how that happens on earth and the end. And then we're going to get to the seven bold judgments and they're going to be also at the end and will end. The seventh one will be the end. So now we're to my favorite part of the story. We're through with all that stuff. And now we're to the story part. And I I really love the story part. So we're going to start the story of the power struggle between good and evil that is told in Revelation. And we're going to start it at the beginning. And guess where the beginning is? In Genesis. We're not going to go through the whole Bible. But we are going <laughs> to be a very long class. But we are going to start with the story in Genesis. Look at Genesis 3, verse 14. We're in the Garden of Eden, the beautiful place that God has prepared for his most precious possession, his most precious creation, mankind. Mankind has always been intended to be the crown of creation. The serpent, Satan has already tempted Adam and Eve. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Satan is a Hebrew word meaning adversary, somebody against you. The devil, the word the devil is a Greek word meaning 
adversary or accuser. It's the same word in two different languages, and it means he is against you and he accuses you. And in Revelation, we find him referred to as the one who stands before God and accuses men day and night. You know what? We know what that sounds like because when we lay down in our beds at night and we're reviewing everything we did during the day, we're accusing ourselves. I don't know. I am. I don't know about you. I'm laying in there and I'm agonizing over the things I said Wednesday morning, you know, <laughs> but, but, and the things that I did and the things that I said all day long. That is not of God. That is exactly how Satan works. He takes what you did. He puts the worst possible light on it. He's a spin doctor. And he's there spinning your life in front of God. And if you let him, he will spin your life for you in your own head. So when you are hearing that kind of spin, it should raise a red flag. And you should say, get thee behind me, Satan. And ask God to show you how He sees you. It will be an eye-opening experience. So here we are with Adam and Eve. They've eaten the bad fruit because they think it's going to make them more like God. And now God is dealing with their disobedience. Now God has already dealt with Adam at this point. He says, Adam, because you, you ate this fruit, no longer will you just be able to walk around and pick food off the trees. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to work for it hard to be able to feed yourself and your family. And now he's going to talk to the, Satan and to the woman, who are the key characters in the, in the story in Revelation. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now that's very interesting. Who is the seed of the woman? Cain, Abel, people, us, ultimately everybody, right? Including Christ, right? From a human point of view. Who is the seed of Satan? Aha, you don't know that yet. You don't know that yet. Very interesting. There's going to be enmity between Satan and the woman and between the seed of Satan and the seed of, of man. Let's read on. So then to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's kind of like you're going to be in so much pain with children that if you're logical at all, you'll tell the guys to sleep in the other room. But God says that's not going to be possible for you. You're going to have to bear this pain. You will not be able to avoid it. So go to Revelation chapter 12 verse 1, which is where this story picks up again. With the same characters. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. See the, I mean, just picking right up where the story left off. Because here we are with the woman in labor. All right. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, who is identified later in Revelation as Satan. You can just take it to the bank. This is Satan. It says so in Revelation. Having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Whew, that's a lot packed into that story right there. So, back up. First, we've got to figure out who this woman is, because it's obviously not Eve, right? Eve was representative. So, we're all the way to Revelation, to the end. So, we've got to figure out symbolically, if Satan is a dragon, who is the woman? Now, there, there, there's several clues to who this woman is. She's clothed with the sun, has the moon on her feet, and she has the, a crown of 12 stars. Well, we always do what when we're trying to interpret symbols in Revelation? We go back and we look at those same symbols elsewhere in Scripture. There is another prophecy in Scripture that uses exactly those same symbols. Let's look at it. It's in Genesis 37, verse 5. It's Joseph's dreams. The ones that made his brothers try to murder him. or It didn't get him killed, but they tried to murder him because of these dreams. Now, I want you to realize who Joseph is. Joseph is one of the twelve sons of Jacob. You know who Jacob's other name is? Israel. Jacob's other name is Israel. Joseph is one of the twelve sons of Israel. Original heads of the twelve tribes. Now, let's look at this dream. Dream, and I'm just going to tell it. Joseph had actually a couple of dreams. And the one that's important to us is the one in which he, he, his second dream. Now, he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brother brothers and his father called him down on it and said what is this dream you have had shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down to you on the ground so in this and this actually did come to pass but in this dream the son is Israel the father Israel okay the moon was the mother and the stars were the tribes of Israel okay the brothers Alright, so now we're going to go back because there's other imagery in the Bible associated with the sun. We can't just take it from one place. The sun is also associated with righteousness and glory, kind of all over the place in the Bible. There's a couple of uh, places we can look. They're real short and they're not in your scripture references, but it's Malachi 4. Verse 2, Malachi is near the end of the Old Testament. Very, very small. Probably I'll read it by the time you can find the pages on. But he, what it says is, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So the sun there, it's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N, sun. The sun is associated with righteousness. That is not unusual in scripture. Psalm 84:11 has the same 
kind of a connotation just one little tiny verse it says for the Lord God is a sun and a shield the Lord gives grace and glory no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly so that's just two places you know in the Bible where it talks about the sun in terms of radiance glory righteousness just intuitively you can understand that that's what the sun would connote okay now the the moon then is is a little bit different if we know that sun moon stars also throughout scripture are used to refer to heavenly hosts as well as to you know in this case the tribes of Israel or what are glory or whatever so if we say the sun in in this vision in revelation the sun that she's clothed with is righteousness and glory if we say that the 12 stars she's crowned with are the 12 tribes of Israel okay then the moon that's under her feet all we have left for that is the spiritual beings or the rest of creation okay so here we have a picture of a woman who I believe is Israel spiritually viewed by God that's how God sees her I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the working hypothesis that this woman is the nation of Israel all right and and we're gonna see if the rest of the facts fit that as we see what happens to her okay now, the great red dragon, we know, is Satan. But here we see Satan in a way we've never seen him before. We see him as he was created. This is how God sees Satan. This is how Satan looks spiritually. These are all spiritual pictures, right? So, when you look at Satan from a spiritual point of view, you are seeing a majestic creation of God. Now, he's fallen. I'm not saying he's good. Nobody misquote me here. But, but he was originally created to be the equal of the other archangels like Michael. People think of Satan as equal to Christ. No, wrong. No, no. Satan is not, never was, never can be equal to Christ. But he is comparable in creation to the archangels. And here's what he looks like. He has seven crowned heads and ten horns. The crowns, the word crowns there is the word diadem, not the word stephanos. So these are not crowns that he won by overcoming. These are crowns he was given as his right. He, was, he is spiritual royalty. Okay? Satan was created as one of the elite and glorious works of God. But you can see it very, very interesting that although he has seven heads and seven crowns on those heads, he also has what? Ten horns. Isn't it interesting that ultimately the world government is divided into ten kingdoms? Hmm, hold that thought. Might come in handy later. So God has a plan to save his creation through the redemption of man, that woman is about to deliver a man-child. He's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, let's see. Who could that be? We can probably guess who that is, but we don't want to guess. All right, Way too much guessing has been happening in Revelation. We're going to look at Psalm 2, verse 1 through 12. 
Why are the nations in an uproar? This is in the uh, handouts. And the people devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So here's all the, the, the kings of the earth plotting against God and his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Who who is that? We know from other prophecy who that is. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, without a doubt. There, there can be no way around it. He is the king that God establishes on Zion. And here you have in the Old Testament him being referred to as the Son of God. Now, now that we know who he is, look what it says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Christ will break the nations of the world with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Don't be silly. Don't be stupid. Read the writing on the wall. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he will not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wow. That, if that wasn't clear enough, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Peter and John quote this psalm and say that was talking about Christ. Okay? There is no doubt. We are 100% sure from Scripture that the male child that Israel delivers is Jesus. Jesus himself quoted it. In Revelation chapter 2, I don't know if you remember, but on verse 26 of chapter 2, he's talking to Thyatira. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. So there Christ quotes that same psalm. To Thyatira saying, I received this authority from my father and I'm going to share it with you. You also, the overcomers, will have authority over the nations, will rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of potter are broken to pieces. Wow. So, back to the story. The dragon is standing here waiting for the woman to deliver the male child. He's waiting for Israel to deliver the Messiah so he can devour him as soon as he is born. But his plan failed. Jesus overcame Satan. Satan tried. He tempted him. But it didn't work. And even though Jesus was crucified, he did that by his own choice to save us. God, We know the end of that story. God raised Christ up. And he is now sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Just like it says here in Revelation that the man-child was caught up by God into heaven. So, now, we need to go back and look at this timeline of the 77s. You've, got, you've probably got three or four of these 
over the, the course of the classes in Daniel and Revelation, but I printed it for you again because I want to remind you about what happened to God's timeline. Now, this timeline is of the prophecy of the 77s that, that, that was in Daniel that prophesied the end times. It gives us the whole over timeline of the events of the end. And that timeline started with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, or the decree, the issuance of the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And it ends, the 70th, 7th ends with the second coming of Christ, right? Now, we already know that, that this represents 490 years. We also know that there was a division, that there, was, there were segments of the prophecy. The end of the 69th year, we already studied, was prophesied to be the time when the Messiah came and was rejected. Okay? When he, when he was destroyed. That was his, cru- when he came and was crucified. It was at the end of the 69th seven. And we already looked at all that, how that worked out, really worked out in history. That's how many number of years it was. But the 70th seven, the last seven years, did not start immediately. Now, from God's point of view, the story is 77s. There's, and it just happens to be divided up this way. And, and that time gap that happened in between the 69th and the 70th seven, I believe, was because Israel rejected the Messiah. I think Israel had a chance to accept Jesus Christ at that moment. And if they had done so, the 70th seven would have started immediately, I believe. That's my opinion. But they rejected him. So now, and Daniel now hears that there's going to be all this judgment and stuff happening in the 70th seven, and that the, this whole time frame has to extend, according to Daniel's prophecy, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that is a double meaning. It's until our wickedness in the world is full up, till the Gentile nations have completely completed their transgression, right? And also until the Gentiles have been saved. Right? Those who are going to... It's for us. That gap is for our benefit. That gap is where we have a chance to be grafted in to Israel, into the promises to Israel. Okay? Keep in mind that the story... Is there story, you know, that Daniel prophesied in that gap? No. We don't know any details about that gap. We don't know how long it is. We don't know what happens. We just know what, you know, how it ends. We know how it begins and we know how it ends. The storyline skips that part and begins with the last seven years. Okay? So that's how it is in Daniel. That's how it is in Revelation too. Because what we just read was how Satan was standing here at this point in time, at the end of the 69th seven, waiting to devour that man-child. Okay? That's where the story left off. Now we would expect the story to pick up at the beginning of the 70th seven, because it's the same story. Okay? Let's see where it, what it does. Revelation 12, verse 6 is the very next verse. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. 
All right, mathematicians, how long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years exactly. You divide it by 30 for the prophetic year. You divide it by months. It's three and a half years, 42 months. So three and a half years would get us to the very middle, which is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Okay? Are we in the three and a half years now? No. We're in the dots. We're in the gap. We're in the gap. We're, we, we personally, you sure, you know, you Patsy, me Gail, are in the gap. Okay? What starts the 69th? I mean, what starts the 70th seven? Anybody remember? The Antichrist signs the covenant with the many. So that hadn't happened yet. Three and a half yet. We're not in it yet. Are we right at the edge of it? We don't know. Seems like we're at the edge of it, doesn't it? it does. But but we we one of the reasons I don't think we're at the edge of it yet, though we're certainly hurtling that way, is because the world has not yet been divided up into ten kingdoms, ten ten governments. That is a that has to happen for him to sign this for for the seven seventy sevens to start. Another thing that has to happen, according to scripture, is a temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay, and sacrifices have to be started. Now, it's entirely possible that that temple gets rebuilt at the beginning of the 70th seven. It doesn't say it has to necessarily happen before the 70th seven. It could happen at that time. In other words, the signing of the covenant could include provisions for Israel to rebuild the temple. Okay, but very early in this period, that happens if it hadn't happened already. So. So there's a, a couple of things that could happen, but you know those could happen in the blink of an eye, right? Okay. So we, we are not yet to the, to the 70th seven. Because if we were at the 70th seven, there would only be seven years left to the end, to the end, till Christ comes. Okay. That's right. So we definitely might get to be there because pl- this could all happen very quickly. All right. So now let's look and see what happens. We now know that this says... The woman, who we've identified as Israel, fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God where she would be nourished for that first three and a half years. Does this mean a physical place? Does it mean that somehow God supernaturally protects the borders of Israel? Is it the people? We, you know... It doesn't say here, but when you start combining it with Daniel, you start to get a picture that it probably is the nation of Israel, um, the the literal one on earth. Because we know from Daniel that the Antichrist does not break his covenant with the many. See, he signs that covenant at the beginning of the seven years. He doesn't break it till the middle of the seven years. And when he breaks it, he goes after the Jews. When he breaks it, he begins a campaign targeted at Israel. So we know during those first three and a half years, he wasn't, he wasn't persecuting them like he will during the last three and a half years. You do find interpreters who read into the woman and the 1260 days and the fleeing into the wilderness that, who interpret the woman to be Mary because the man-child is Jesus and because Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled to Egypt for some period of time, right, after he was born to avoid Herod. I think that's definitely a foreshadowing of what's happening here in Revelation, but I don't think in the context of Revelation that's what 
that the woman is Mary. You know, in the context of Revelation, the woman is Israel. You know, if it was Mary, there wouldn't be any logical reason to even have it in Revelation. Okay, because it would not be pertinent to those of us living at the time of the end. Right. Okay. But I think it is a foreshadowing. So anyway, now at this point, we're to Revelation 12, verse 7. The story backs up, tells the same story, but from a different perspective. Now, it's going to end up at the same place. It's going to end up that same 1260 days. But this time, instead of the story being from the perspective of Israel and, you know, and the Messiah and all that, this time the story tells what is happening from the point of view of heaven. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. So right there you can see an illustration of what I was telling you about Satan being basically at the same level as Michael the archangel. So Satan has angels. Michael has angels, armies of angels. They have this huge spiritual battle. And this battle would have been occurring back all through time. I mean, this is, this is a great heavenly struggle that could have occurred in any time from, from creation forward, right? Okay. Timing isn't exactly said, but it says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So there you go. Okay, that, that's where I got that he was Satan. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of two things, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Satan is no longer in heaven. He's on earth. And woe to the earth, because he knows his time is short now. The thing to notice is that that battle in heaven was won because of the blood of the Lamb. So it had to have been won some point at the crucifixion, right? It couldn't have been won in Old Testament times. That battle was still raging in Old Testament times. It was won because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the saints who overcame, who stood it, who persevered to the end through all their trials and tribulations, who rejected Satan. We have a role to play in this. Okay? In this struggle. It is entirely possible that this struggle is still happening. Okay? Because there are still saints who are still overcoming. In any case, we know for a fact that Satan is here on earth. Right? And operating on earth. We we have a role to play. And it's not a light role. The time of the end is approaching. So here we are. The 70th week is coming. And according to the prophecy, the Satan knows his time is short. So when the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
Well, we know that. We know Satan has been persecuting Israel and the Jews from the get-go. Verse 14, But two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. What's time, times, and half a time? Three and a half years. All right, we're back to the same place in the story. Okay, where the woman is allowed to escape to the wilderness to a place God prepared for her. Okay, so now we've seen the story from two different angles. Now let's see what happens. Revelation 12, verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now, I have no clue what that's going to look like. All right? Hasn't happened. And I don't know what it's going to look like. It could literally be a literal event. It's more likely, given the fact that this is a spiritual view of what's happening, that this water being poured out of his mouth is some sort of a representation of a spiritual event. We will recognize it when it happens physically, but it may not look like water, is what I'm saying. Okay? Because Israel doesn't look much like a woman, right? And Satan, as far as we know, on earth, when we come in contact with what he's in his operations on earth, we very rarely see a fiery red dragon. Okay? Um, We usually see temptation. So we need to keep our minds open to, to the fact that the water that gushes forth may be representative of something else. For, I'm going to give you a for example. Okay? Last week, we looked at some scriptures that talked about water as being what comes forth from the mouth, right? It's, it's like the, the evidence of your spirit coming forth from your mouth. And, and, we, and we all know that living water is what Jesus gives us, right? Okay. It we also know that the earth is like mankind, right? Okay, it's very often in scripture used to refer to all of mankind, all of, all of creation. So if you use those symbolic interpretations, it could mean that Satan tries to overwhelm Israel to bring her down with a deluge of lies and temptation Everything he can throw at them, right? And that Israel doesn't buy it, but that all of the rest of the nations of the world buy it, hook, line, and sinker. That's one way you can look at it. Who knows what will really happen, but you know what? We're educated. We'll know that the time is coming. We've got a good sense of the timeline. When these events start happening, we'll know the time is coming for Revelation 12 to start happening. We will know to watch for it. Okay. Either way, the next verse tells us that even though Satan can't bring Israel down during the first three and a half years, he can still make life plenty miserable for the rest of us during that time. Look at verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there again, you see us being included in the heritage of Israel. All right. We are counted as her children. 
just like Jesus is counted as her child, we are counted as her children as well and heirs with him. But in this time of the end, there are things happening to Israel that the rest of us aren't. We're not physically there. It's not happening to us there. Okay. So there's some things here prophesied that Israel's going to be protected the first three and a half years. The rest of us aren't. Uh, you know, I mean, we'll have protection like we have protection now, but Satan's going to be picking on us. Okay. So now we find out what his plan is for picking on us. Here's the plan. Revelation 13 verse 1. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And his, on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Alright, first off the bat. The sea. In Daniel chapter 7, you saw four kingdoms, or four beasts, I'm sorry, coming up out of the sea in Daniel's vision. In Daniel chapter 7, that part of the vision is interpreted in the scripture to represent four kings coming out of the earth. Okay? So we, are saying, we can safely interpret here the sea to mean the people of the earth. That that beast comes out of the people of the earth. He is a man. Alright? But he is called forth by Satan. Right? Now, look what Satan, what the beast looks like. He has ten horns and seven heads. Right? That looks remarkably like Satan. Doesn't it? That's exactly what that dragon had. This is the seed of Satan that we read about in Genesis. There's one big difference in the description. In the description of Satan at the beginning of this story, the crowns were on the seven heads. Now where are the crowns? On the ten horns. Satan transferred his power and authority to this beast and he put it on those ten horns. What are horns in its prophecy? Kings, kingdoms, powers. This is where the world gets divided up in those ten governments. See how this all works? Alright. So now we look at what this beast looked like. His physical representation. Oh, first I want to say that notice that these are diadems, not Stephanos. It's still diadems. So this beast did not earn this power. He was given his power by Satan. Now, look at the physical representation. First off, he's mostly a leopard with feet like a bear and mouth like a lion. Totally consistent with the prophecies in Daniel that talk about who this is. The fourth and final kingdom in Daniel that we've been calling the imperialist kingdom continues today, will continue to the, in, to the time of the Antichrist, but its roots are in some other ancient kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7, the first kingdom was the kingdom of Babylonia. And its symbol was the lion. Remember in Daniel's visions, Babylon was a lion. The capital of Babylonia is the city Babylon. And many people, including me, believe that the capital of the ten world government will be Babylon in the future. 
It's certainly going to be a spiritual Babylon. Could be New York City, you know, but but could be Paris. It could be a brand new city, okay? But but from God's point of view, it's Babylon. So his mouth, the mouth of the beast, is Babylon. That's where his capital is. In Daniel chapter seven, there was another kingdom. It was the kingdom of Persia. The kingdom of Persia was represented in Daniel's vision by a bear. The feet of the beast in Revelation are like a bear. Does this mean that his armies are based in Persia? Does it mean his wealth is based in Persia? What actually makes his government go? Okay, It's his feet. There's significance in the fact that it's his feet. In addition to the fact that that Persia um, changed its name to, to Iran... His borders have changed. Look at, at map number one. This is what Persia looked like in the time of Daniel. This is the kingdom of the bear. Okay? And you, it's all that gold part. You can see that it spreads from Egypt and Libya up through the Holy Land, through Syria, wraps around um, the, the Mediterranean, and extends over to Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, okay? all the way up to the borders of India. Okay, so it's a huge, huge area. Think about this in terms of the feet of the bear. Okay, if that geographic region represents the feet of the beast, think about what that represents. According to one news source that I checked, Iran houses the second largest pool, untapped petroleum reserves in the world. When you add that to the reserves that are in Iraq, which is also incorporated in this geographic area, the total approaches that of Saudi Arabia, which has the most reserves in the world. Okay? Now, look at where Saudi Arabia is in relation to this beast. Okay? This bear is sitting on top of the Strait of Hormuz which is where 40% of the world's oil export sports have to pass. Okay? So it's controlling access to the reserves in Saudi Arabia, in addition to having already of its own equal reserves equal to that. On top of that, Iran houses roughly 16% of the world's natural gas reserves. Combine that with the prophecy in Daniel 11.24, which is in your scripture references, that tells about what the Antichrist does on his rise to power. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. I think you put all that together, and I think that that region provides the wealth that makes the government of the Antichrist run. Lastly, Revelation tells us the beast looks like a leopard. In Daniel chapter 7, the leopard was the Greek empire of, of Alexander. And your map number 2 is a picture of the Greek empire at that time. It covers a similar geographic area. We know from Daniel 
that the Antichrist utterly uproots three of those ten world kingdoms in his rise to power. Remember that? Is it possible that three of the ten world governments are covered by this particular geographic area? We don't know, but we can sure keep our eyes open. So I'm going to stop here and we'll pick up the story there next week.